And if you will, go ahead and open up your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We're going to be reading verses 1 through 8. And since we're jumping right in here, most of you know that 1 Corinthians 15 is the great resurrection chapter. And you might not even remember how it opens up. Paul is in the middle of answering a lot of different questions about the resurrection, about why it's so important that if you deny the resurrection, the supernatural work of God to raise Jesus Christ from the dead, that a denial of that is a denial of the very heart of Christianity. And whatever religion you have, it's no longer Christian after you deny that fundamental truth. And what we have here at the very beginning, though, before he even gets into his argument, before he gets into all the different nuances of what the the resurrection means and the significance of it for Christ himself and also for us in general, he gets us back to the basics, back to lay down the fundamentals. What makes a Christian a Christian? What's a fundamental prime importance He does this to get his people's priorities in line, to straighten them out, which is the title of my sermon this morning. Let's now read God's holy, inerrant word. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I gospeled to you, or in your ESV, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, And by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, As to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for giving us your word. I pray that your Holy Spirit would empower my words. Not that they're my words, that I would speak your words. And that the Holy Spirit would empower his own words to affect our minds. For we do confess that in ourselves we are too dumb to understand. We have blinders on our eyes and our ears seem plugged. I pray that everyone in this room would have their ears unplugged, their eyes opened, and that they would understand what the nature of Christianity is. In Jesus Christ's name, we pray. Amen. I kind of conceived of this message more as a charge than anything else looking at God's word, trying to ground us in the reality of what makes us Christians. 
It's really important to keep our priorities straight, by the way. If you decide to go on a hike, but you don't have any place that you want to go in particular, and you don't have a route in mind, but you think you're just going to plop down in the middle of the woods and just walk around without any priorities, without any direction, not only are you going to get lost, but you're probably going to find that you die. There's lots of wandering that has went around. Churches of our day are often focused on what we are to do. Action. Having self-disciplined spirituality. Having world-transforming agendas to win our culture. And we have some things right now that are going on that might inspire that. We just had the Roe versus Wade decision overturned and praise the Lord for that. Babies will not be murdered as frequently in our country and there are some places where it will be outlawed. That is amazing news. But the good news of Christianity is better news than even that. Because whatever we hope to achieve in this world is only going to have temporary significance. Laws can be overturned. Cultures won today can be lost tomorrow. Haven't we witnessed that? Where is our hope? What defines our hope? Where is our hope located? Fortunately, it's not located in us. It's located in the gospel of Jesus Christ. God's word that is unfailing. And since our God, that is where our hope is, that shows us that we are not just investing our lives, especially as Christians, as a church, as at all saints. What we invest our lives in is of eternal significance, of eternal worth. We go, we go out into the world to offer people news of eternal significance. We need to be reminded of that. Sometimes we think we get beyond the basics, that we no longer need this. But we have to be very careful because it's very easy to get lost. It's really easy for the church to get off track. Yes, when good, new, when good things happen, but also when bad things happen that distract us, when we see the culture crumbling around us that leads us to a sort of despair, that we think that the gospel is somehow failing. But that's not the case. It's also easy to get lost because of the beliefs and practices, the methods of the world around us. Michael Horton said that the heart of most religions is good advice, good techniques, good programs, good ideas, and good support systems. These drive us deeper and deeper into ourselves to find our inner light, inner goodness, our inner voice, and inner resources. And nothing new is to be found inside of us. Everyone has some sort of, it seems like everyone in this world has some sort of theory, at least I guess in theory we all agree on the idea that we should improve our society, that things like abortion amongst the conservative world, we see that as sin and we want to have it put away to become unthinkable like the institution of slavery. We want to have social betterment, but People are divided on exactly what that looks like. But you know what so, no, none of the world actually agrees on? None of the world 
agrees that sin is the problem, that death is abnormal, that salvation and life in God, these things are only found in Christ. If you want to avoid that debate, you can. All you have to do is drift with the current of our culture. But what we have in our text here today, in these first eight verses, is something that makes us unique as the church of Jesus Christ. We need to orient our lives, focus on the things that makes the church the church. The church has the gospel. And as we go through our test, we're going to see that Paul's priority was to proclaim a message. That this message he then clarifies And this message he then confirms with nothing less than God's promises and that it is true. So let's look at those first two verses in our text. Verse 1, Now I would remind you, brothers, or I want you to know, brothers, of the good news I good newsed to you. The word there, gospel, it kind of, uh, we often get confused on what the definition of it is, in part because it's an old English word. And if you think that old English might be somewhat related to the language we speak, go try to read Beowulf in its original language, and you'll soon discover how different it is. But gospel just means good news. That's what it meant in Beowulf's time, good news. But we use euphemisms And the problem with euphemisms is that sometimes we lose what it is. He good-newsed these people, and they good-newsed. This is the good news is what they received. The good news is what they stand in. And it's the good news by which you are being saved if you hold fast to the word preached to you. Or in other words, good-newsed to you. You kind of get a kind of feel for what Paul is doing here. He's focusing on on the good news of Christianity. News that, by its very nature, good news, has content, has information. It's about something that has happened. Another word for that is history. Something that has happened that is good, that is proclaimed by Paul. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 7, uh, verse 17 Paul says this about his mission. He says, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the good news, and not with words of eloquent wisdom. Note he did say with words. Not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. It's this event of the crucifixion and what was accomplished there that's the breaking news that he's sharing with the world. The breaking news which they receive. The mode of receiving is what? It's by faith. It's believing it. Trusting that this history that was told to us of this breaking news story, that it is true. Verse 11 of our text in chapter 15 says, whether it was I or they, talking about people who preach the gospel, so we preached and so you believed. That's the way that it's grabbed onto. This is news to be believed. And it's, an, it's news that we tell people because it's aimed at the salvation of people's souls. 2 Corinthians 5, 17 through 21, 
talks about how if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ, listen to the good part, reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. What makes this news, this breaking news, so good is what it's resulted in. Whatever it is, we haven't even defined it yet, but whatever this news is, this news is information about how God has reconciled us, those who are in Christ, those who have faith in Christ, to himself, dealing with a problem that has eternal significance. The assumption here is that we are all dead in our sins. That, as I read earlier, that the wages of sin, the thing that we've earned for ourselves, is God's wrath, demonstrated in death, yes, in this life, but also, as Jesus himself tells us, eternal hell. This message is one that must be received. Notice that he says in verse 2, by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word that I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. What's Paul's point here? Paul's point is, you can have a hope of salvation so long as you're trusting in Christ. When you ask yourself, what's my only hope in life and in death? My only hope in life and death is that I belong body and soul to Jesus Christ, that only he is able to save me. Sometimes we, when we're preaching or explaining the gospel to people, we tell them about this news that Jesus Christ died for their sins and rose again from the dead. They say, well, doesn't that forgive my sins? Yeah, then I'm good. I don't have to do anything. No. The mode of this receiving is believing. It's not automatically effective. Just because Jesus died on the cross does not mean that there is no faith that you need to place in him, no trust in him, no repentance from your sins, that you can live under a rock way out in the middle of nowhere, never hear about who Jesus is, and have a hope of salvation. That's why we preach this message. That's what motivates us to go out. This gospel, this message, notices who's receiving it, who's standing in it, who's being saved by it. It's individuals. It's not nations. It's not cultures. This is a message to believe, be believed by individual sinners, that their sins might be forgiven. We work to convince individuals. Any sort of cultural change that we affect in the world, praise the Lord for that. But that task is accomplished by convincing and God's working to save individual sinners who live transformed lives. And sometimes God blesses us in the sense that we get to see that working out itself in the world. And other times, as in days like this, it seems that that's not, that we do not have enough power to influence our culture as much as we would like. But that's why the God, it's really important to remember, to get our priorities straight here, to know that the gospel is for individuals. The gospel does not convert American culture. 
We're not here to advance any kingdom of this earth first and foremost. We can be patriotic. We can love our country, and we should. God has blessed us with it. But the kingdom that we are made to advance is the kingdom of God. His kingdom, seeing it reign over human hearts, that is to be our orienting principle, our priority. And I think that it would be foolish of me if I just glanced over the fact that he says that this is a message, that this message of first importance, verse 3, is a message that he also received. Paul received this message about the death and resurrection of Jesus. And he's saying it in a similar fashion. He said, you received it from someone preaching. I received it. But doesn't Galatians chapter 1 and 2 explain that Paul's gospel is not a gospel, a good news that's sourced in himself or in his own particularities, but it's found in God, that he received this gospel from God and no man? Yes. In Galatians, he's talking about the source the fountain from which this comes, that he was delivered, that Jesus Christ did meet him on the road to Damascus, gave him a message. But even in, even in Galatians chapter 1 and 2, he had his message authenticated. He went to the apostles and they gave him the right hand of fellowship. They authenticated saying, yes, you preach the same gospel, the same good news, we good news to people. You good news to people. Paul is passing on this tradition, and it's not a tradition that's locked up away behind some bars of heaven that only we have access to in the sense that we're the only ones that could have this secret knowledge. No, this is a public event. It happened in recorded history under the reign of Augustus Caesar 2,000 years ago. His fundamental, Paul's fundamental priority here let's not let this just escape us, is a message. I've been reading a lot of J. Gresham Mason, so he's going to come up a couple times in this uh, sermon. I've been reading his biography uh, by Ned Stonehouse, which is very good. I recommend you reading it. It's been an encouragement to my soul. He said in this, and this is um, printed on, this is not from the biography, but this is printed on Dennis's door. And it has been really helpful to me every time I've thought, passed by and I've read it and it's made an impression to me ever since I've come into the doors of this church. On Dennis's door, he has this quote from Machen. What I need, first of all, is not exhortation, but a gospel. Not directions for saving myself, but knowledge of how God has saved me. Have you any good news? That is the question that I ask of you. I know your exhortations will not help me, but if any, anything, anyone has been, anything has been done to save me, sorry, will you not tell me the facts? The thing about news, and we know this in every other realm of society, that room, news, is about information. Information delivered to individuals. This means that we have to, if we're going to share the gospel, if our priorities are going to be in line with Paul, his priority was to proclaim the gospel, it means that we're going to have to open our mouths in order to share this information. This information is not going to just transfer by osmosis. 
People are not going to be offended by how, how kind you are to them. What they need, though, they do need your kindness. They do need your care. They do need to see the love of the gospel flowing out of you, that you're not a hypocrite. But more than that, they need to know the breaking news story that's kind of old now, that Jesus Christ has dealt with their most serious problem, something of eternal significance, the guilt of their sins. If the church's priority is to proclaim the gospel, well, that's just good news. But what kind of good news? What's the content of it? Fortunately, Paul does not leave us hanging. He tells the content of this message, of this good news, starting in verse 4, or really starting at the second half of verse 3. This news that he delivered of first importance, which he also received, is that Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. Paul outlines the two major focal points of his message, of the good news he good newsed as Jesus' death and resurrection. First, his death. Notice he says, this, this is the good news part, that Jesus died is not good news. That's pretty terrible. The only innocent man in the world suffered a grueling fate. That's pretty terrible news. The good news is that he died for our sins. This is why the New Testament is obsessed with the death of Jesus. Look at how many times this has already come up in his letter in 1 Corinthians. Chapter 1, we already said that he preached the gospel, not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Chapter 2, the first two verses. And when I came to you, brothers, did not co- I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Chapter 5, verse 7. Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. When was that sacrifice? Oh yeah, the cross. Even in chapter 8, he says, he talks about how you're to deal with weaker brothers, people who are immature with their faith. Paul says, and so by your knowledge, this weak, weak person is destroyed when the strong just step on the weak. The brother for whom Christ died That's why we're to care. And even in this most recently, in chapter 11, verse 26, talking about the Lord's Supper, what's the main point of this? This thing that we do every week here at All Saints? That we are proclaiming the Lord's death till he comes. There's a reason why we're obsessed with the death of Jesus. It's because he died for our sins. But the focal point of this chapter is, moves right on past the death really quickly, a lot quicker than we normally are used to. Paul instead focuses on, and for the rest of this chapter, Jesus' resurrection. He actually summarizes his message, the message he preached in verse 12 of this chapter 15, where he says, Now, Christ, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, 
how can some of you say that there's no resurrection of the dead? What's the inbuilt assumption there? The assumption when he goes on to explain about why denying the resurrection is breaking apart Christianity's very core, he says that his message is Christ is proclaimed by them as raised from the dead. And he also says even that if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is in vain. That's what they've been preaching is Christ is raised from the dead. It's important at this point to just note that whenever we say that Jesus' death on the cross is good news, it's never good news in isolation. It's always good news because it's directly connected with the same redemptive event, which is that Jesus is raised. The two are connected together. If he had died, as Paul just said, if he had died but had not risen, our faith would still be in vain and we would remain in our sins. This is why in Acts 24, verse 21, Paul, when he's explaining what he's doing on trial, summarizes it, his trial and why he's in prison, by saying this, it is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day. I think we need to highlight the resurrection a little bit more thoroughly with people when we share the gospel, share the breaking news story with others. Because this is the supernatural event. People die every day. People by the Roman Empire were crucified every day. But it's not every day that someone rises from the dead. The resurrection of the dead shows the very heart of Christianity is in a supernatural event acted by a supernatural God to save his people supernaturally. The resurrection is not just some mere ancillary supporting evidence that he died and actually paid for our sins. It shows in the resurrection that our God, the living God, is able to save sinners. The risen Christ is the substance of the message. The risen Christ, the fact that he is raised and he is able to save, that's the person we put our hope in. What we get to when we read about the gospel as Paul presents it here is that God, that Paul's priority in proclaiming the gospel is not just a mere recitation of information. It's a breaking news story that the God who you have offended is the God who has reconciled us to himself in Christ. And that he, his son, was raised from the dead. He is alive and he is able to save you. It's news about a person. A person who's alive today, sitting on the throne of heaven. This was Paul's priority. It's a message that we are so glad he's given us the content. The content of it is the risen Lord is able to save. But he doesn't end there. He confirms his message. The message is confirmed. Notice, this is the significance behind he was buried. The essence and core of Paul's gospel is not the fact that Jesus died, and that's of equal significance and weight as that the fact that he was buried, and that that is equal in significance to the resurrection, and then same thing for the appearances. No, his burial is the proof that he truly died. 
And his subsequent appearances are proof that he really did rise from the dead. When you leave the grocery store, you often get something that you throw away almost immediately. It's a receipt. It's a ticket that shows that, yes, you have purchased these things. And receipts really are pretty much worthless when I have my phone kind of scarily tracking all my purchases and updating it for my budget. But this is a receipt you don't want to throw away. History is an excellent receipt that we hold in our hands that we can look to to know we have a true hope. It is real. It is grounded in the things that have actually happened 2,000 years ago. The trueness of Christianity is why you should believe it. But history, evidence that we can find in this world that is designed looking back at historical evidences is not actually the fundamental reason why you have a very sure proof that this is true, receipt in your hand. The most sure word comes from God in a phrase that I've kind of passed over. Notice that he died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, raised on the third day in particular. What? In accordance with with the scriptures. Both of these events, the one redemption, happened because it was part of God's plan to save humanity. And we have God's word on it. When I was reading Psalm 22, could you not help but see the events that happened in the Gospels? Could you not help but see a man, the man who was stricken and whose heart was broken and who was going to the cross feeling abandoned, that that was the Jesus of Scripture? And even in that psalm, Psalm 22, it doesn't end in despair. Notice that the grief of one afflicted, forsaken, that he was remembered by God. And when we get to the New Testament, we see exactly what that looks like. And when we look at Isaiah, we see that, yes, Jesus did have to die, and he did have to raise again from the third day. This is the message of the New Testament apostles. John 20, verse 9, when the, apostle, when the disciples found that Jesus' tomb was empty, they didn't understand it. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 10 through 11, concerning this salvation, our hope of heaven, our being purchased by the blood of Christ, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours, searched and inquired carefully. Inquiring, they're inquiring of the scriptures, what person or time the spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. The death and resurrection of Christ happened, yes, as a historical event, but more importantly, it happened because God willed it. God decreed it. Acts 26, two, uh, 26 22 through, 30, through 23. I'm not going to read that many verses. Paul on trial when he was before uh, uh, King Agrippa, he said, Here I stand, testifying to both small and great people of different statures, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that Christ must suffer. And that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light, both to our people, the Jews, and to 
the Gentiles. What's the core of his message that he preaches? It's the death and resurrection of Christ. But it's not something, this event in history, of redemptive history, did not just all of a sudden happen. There had been thousands and thousands of years of history of God talking to his people in redemptive history where he made promises, promises that came true. What's the result of having our confidence, holding on to this receipt? With confidence, confidence comes and courage comes when we have firm convictions. How does Paul set up to get them to make sure that they don't abandon the doctrine of the resurrection? He firms it up. He firms up their convictions that they may know that it is true. God does love childlike faith in him. In the essence, in, in the, the similarity between the faith that we are to have and childlike faith is we're to have trust like a child in the sense that it is to be wholehearted, unwavering, that we are to believe God the way that a small child believes his father when he speaks to him. But our faith is not to remain immature like a child. Our faith is to grow. It's to mature We're to be people of conviction, people of courage, people who know that this is true because that's why we'll actually end up sharing it with other people because we know it's good news and we know it's true news. And our confidence is not in ourselves or even in the faith that we have. Listen to how Paul talks to his audience. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 again, verses 26 through 31 says, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is lowly and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Where does our faith lie? It lies in God and him being able to save us. And we know that he's able because he raised Jesus Christ from the dead. And if he was able to do that, how much more so is he able to give you a heart that trusts in him? That if he has chosen you, he is able to save you. We need to have our priorities straightened out. So many things can distract us from this message. The message that was Paul's priority. So it probably should be our priority. A message that has clear content, clear and simple content. If any business, Jonathan, if any business is going to survive and you're going to actually be successful in your endeavor, you have to be clear about what the foundational principles of the company is, that everyone has the same mindset, that we all believe in it firmly so that we can get to the right goal. The goal is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. It's this message that centers us on that. And if we get off of this message, the message of the death and resurrection of Christ, we've lost everything. 
it's helpful when we live in difficult times to realize that we're not the only people to have resided in difficult times. Unbelieving age, a culture that seems to have wholeheartedly turned against God. I've told you I've been reading Machen's biography. In 1912, he said to an incoming class of Princeton Seminary students at a commencement address, he was showing them this fact that we need to be focused on the gospel. And he said, the situation is desperate. It might discourage us, but not if we are truly Christians. Not if we are living in vital communion with the risen Lord. If we are really convinced of the truth of our message, then we can proclaim it before the world of enemies. Then the very difficulty of our task, the very scarcity of our allies becomes an inspiration. Then we can even rejoice that God did not place us in an easy age, but in a time of doubt and perplexity and battle. Then, too, we shall not be afraid to call forth other soldiers into the conflict. That's my exhortation to you, all saints. Keep to the basics. Don't abandon the message that Jesus Christ died and rose again, dying for the sins of sinners, raising again the living God giving us hope. That is what we're to live for. And if we abandon this mission, we've lost absolutely everything. It's fine to be about politics. It's fine to proclaim the good news that Roe versus Wade has been abolished in our land. But the, that message only has a temporary effect. It's only temporarily good. I'm not trying to minimize the sin of abortion or how happy that we should be that abortion has been undone, at least in large swaths of this country. It's about priorities. The church needs to be prioritized on proclaiming the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you have saved us from our sins. Oh Lord, we do not know and we can hardly fathom what the immeasurable greatness of his power is towards us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ. Lord, help us to be men and women, women of conviction, believing this truth. May your Holy Spirit assure our hearts that this word is good and that it is glorious and that it is news that the world needs, lest it go to hell. Oh God, may you convince us of its truthfulness. It's in Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen.